Well, it's uh, very good to be back here at Christchurch Fullwood. A number of folks that I've, I look out I've not met before. Uh, as uh, Peter said, our leader church, Christchurch Central, uh, down in uh, the city centre, we uh, left Christchurch Fullwood three years ago. Uh, we're that creative with the name. We couldn't really think of anything better, but I think, well, we're the same as you guys, but we'll be in the city centre, so we'll call it Christchurch Central. Um, I do bring you greetings as well from the other folks, the members uh, of uh, the church uh, that, uh, that left here. We, last uh, month or so, we kind of numbered just below 200 people. So uh, we've got a whole load of people. You, 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 they don't know who you are, actually. Uh, and uh, we had to introduce Paul last week who came and th- spoke at our third birthday celebrations and trying to explain who he was. Uh, I felt very, very comfortable there because uh, most of the folks in our church, they're, re- they're very, very tall. They're very t- it's a very tall church. The average man is about six foot four. Uh, we've got one guy called Andy Failer who's shorter than me. And then there's the children. And it was great having Paul along and interviewing him because I think I've got half an inch on him. Uh, and uh, I just want to say, I, I, Paul is a tremendous bloke. I, I said to the folks at 9.15, don't tell him I said that, because you'll just give him, give him a big head. But I really do think he's a super, super Christian leader, and I have thoroughly enjoyed getting to know him, uh, a real sense of friendship with him, uh, and wanting to get on with the gospel together in any way we can in this city which is lost without Christ. And uh, getting together, pray with him, getting a map of Sheffield out and talking and praying and dreaming dreams. It's fantastic. Really, really is. Well, they're just coming to uh, this passage, Romans 5, page 1132. If, uh, if you've not got it open in front of you, please do turn back to it. Just thinking, uh, really, in this whole area, realm of peace. Peace is very, very rare. It is an elusive commodity. We, we deeply value it when we've uh, got it. Well, sometimes, we, we, once we've got it, we begin to take it for granted. But as we look on... Uh, around in our world as we watch our television news and read our newspapers we see how desperately needed peace is virtually everywhere in, in our world uh, next, next Sunday is Remembrance Sunday isn't it uh, the ni- in uh, 1948 uh, the United Nations uh, Charter stated this we the peoples of the United Nations determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind. And we look back at these last decades and we think, well, it's failed, hasn't it? It has. But we wouldn't want to say we don't agree with that, do we? We want to say amen to that as an agenda, as a goal, as a dream, as something to work for. We, We pray for peace, don't we? We really do want to say, yeah, we stand right alongside uh, the, the sentiment and the dream of that uh, 1948 statement. We want to say amen to it. But uh, peace is something that's rare. It's not just rare in our world. It's uh, something we desire in our communities, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our families, in our lives, in our hearts. So when we would go on stress management courses, don't we, we talk about being centred. I don't really know what that means, but we talk about being centred and it kind of gives the idea, I suppose, of an inner calm. We, we talk about inner peace, don't we? That's something that folks, we, we work towards. We, we try and find ways of, of achieving that sense of peace. But peace does remain rare. I'll be honest, it's rare in my home with my four children. 
It's rare in my heart. Uh, folks keep saying to me when I come back up here, you're looking a bit grey at him. Uh, still, I've got some that can still see though, like Peter over there. He was very funny. Funny earlier on, Peter said, you look at me, you know that I don't suffer from dandruff. Well, same with me as well, but I mean, I, yeah, I'm going greyer. Uh, and I think it's been helped by all the concerns one has in leading a church and planning for the future and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, peace, it's, uh, it's, it's quite rare. Why, though, we ask, is, uh, is there a lack of peace? Who is to blame for the lack of peace? Well, of course, we do pretty well, don't we, at blaming prime ministers. We do a pretty good job of blaming presidents. We do a pretty good job of blaming terrorists and insurgents and yobs uh, and, 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 well, you name it. We, can, we blame all sorts of things. But there is also a way in which we, we blame God. I mean, it's not uncommon, is it, to say religion causes all these wars. Religion causes war. And so we, we kind of like throw God out on the basis, well, religion, God, they've got to have something to do with one another, so you reject God because religion has caused war. That's a common argument that people make. Scientists blame God for this lack of peace. In his uh, recent book, which is entitled The God Delusion, uh, Richard Dawkins writes of uh, poisonous religious nonsense that makes people commit vile acts. Uh, and uh, someone showed me a clipping from the Guardian newspaper last Sunday, which uh, basically sort of uh, prophesies really that this, this book of Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion, is going to be number one on the, on the bookshelves at Christmas time. But that's his, that's his view. A religion, a poisonous religious nonsense that makes people commit vile acts. Poets blame God as well, don't they? John Lennon's song imagines a world without God and concludes, imagine all the people living life at peace. No God, peace. But is God to blame? Is God really to blame? If, if I say, I'm going to uh, reject God, I'm going to, to live my life without God, without reference to his ways, I'm going to live my life my way, and if you say, I'm going to live life my way without reference to God and God's ways. It won't take long because my life will interact with your life. Our lives do tend to interact with one another. It won't take long because my interaction with you, well, that comes under my realm of living my life my way. So you and me, you'll be doing the same thing. We'll come into points of friction. Has God had anything to do with it? No. Nothing whatsoever to do with it. See, the Bible's position, and we heard it there in Genesis chapter 3, it's there in the earlier chapters of this book of Romans, the Bible's position is that human beings have declared independence from God, we set ourselves up as little gods, all fighting, pushing and shoving for the throne. Someone's going to get hurt. The temptation with the fruit in, in the Garden of Eden was, eat and you will be like God. Oh, right, okay. We all want to be like God. Not lawbreakers, lawmakers, my way. That's the Bible's position. And it's here, in the, um, uh, as we begin this series, well, you'll be carrying on this series in Romans 5 over the next weeks. But uh, let's just look at it a little bit widely. The, the context uh, of, uh, uh, of uh, the, the verses we're looking at specifically today speak 
of this rebellion and this living without God. So look at verse 6. Verse 6 talks and uses the last word there is ungodly. Talks about us being ungodly. We may not be as bad as we could be, but we're certainly nowhere near as good as we ought to be. We're ungodly. We ought to be like our Creator, like our God, but we're not. Uh, look at verse 8. Verse 8 tells us we're sinners. Now, it's not very popular to say that. It's, uh, I, even in our own hearts, we don't like the sound of that, never mind it being unpopular out there. I hate it when my faults and problems are spoken about and someone points them out to me. I don't think I'm unusual in that. But it's there. Verse 8 says we're sinners. We're rebels. It's, uh, it's not that we, uh, most of us are open. You know, it's not, not that we're openly aggressive and anti-God. Some people are. Richard Dawkins seems to be aggressively anti-God. Others of us are, well, we're, I suppose, we're, we're polite. We're calmly, charmingly sideline God into a little corner of our lives where he's inconsequential, where he's weightless. The impact he has on our lives is pretty minuscule. But we carry on smiling and charmingly going on through our lives. Nicely, don't want to be bad to anyone in particular. God just, no, just, we shrink him. That's the way most of us do it. Just ignore him. Until something goes wrong, and we're banging on his door in prayer. Because, well, now you want my help? As a result of this, look at verse 10. The result is we're God's enemies. That's the phrase that's used there in verse 10. God's enemies. We're hostile towards him, but he doesn't sit back and say, well, that's okay, that's fine by me. I'm a big God, I've got broad shoulders, I can hack you. God doesn't respond in a passive, relaxed way to our rejection and our rebellion against him, but he actually responds to us with hostility. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 mentions God's wrath. God's steady, right, justified, fair, anger, hostility towards us because of the way we've treated him. So we, we are, in our normal natural selves, enemies with God. Enemies, we are not at peace with God. We cry out and we pray for peace, but the Bible says quite clearly that the greatest need for peace is between us and God. Between me and God, between you and God. And uh, that's the first of three great privileges I just want to pick up on from verses 1 to 5. Look back at uh, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing a Christian enjoys, peace with God. We're no longer at war. We're no longer enemies. We have peace. Uh, sometimes it, I think it's helpful just to, be, to, to get right back to basics and, and ask simple questions like, what is a Christian? What makes somebody a Christian? Uh, well, there's a, there's a fantastic little summary there in verse 1. Uh, simple summary, three-word summary. Uh, a Christian could be defined as someone who is, look at the words there, three words, justified through faith. Justified through faith. Uh, Bible words have Bible meanings. Justification is simply this. It, it is a declaration by God that guilty sinners... Rebels are acquitted and innocent before God. 
That's what justification is. It is a declaration by God that a guilty person is innocent in his eyes before him and acquitted, acquitted before him. And how is a Christian justified? Well, God makes the declaration, he makes the declaration of our innocence, our acquittal, not on account of what we can do or what any of us can do or could do ever. There's nothing any of us can do. A person can only be acquitted and declared innocent only on account of Jesus Christ. So let's just cast our eye through some of these uh, words, verses again, through the, the whole of this little section, 1 to 11, and just see the emphasis, the profound emphasis on Jesus. Now look at verse 1 where it says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And look at verse 2. Through whom? Now, through the Lord Jesus Christ we've gained access by faith. Uh, verse 6. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. And look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, the last uh, little phrase there, Christ died for us. And look at verse 9. Verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And the, the phrase there is justified. That word again, justified by his blood. His blood shed for us. And uh, look at verse 10. Reconciled to God through what? Through what I've done? Through going to church? No. Keeping the tank of mountain? No. Justified through the death of his son. It's all about Jesus. That's the only way this amazing declaration of God that we are acquitted, that we're innocent, can happen. We deserve God's wrath and hostility. But it went on Christ. His blood was shed instead of your blood. He died instead of you. He died in my place. That's how we declared innocent. Only through Jesus Christ. Verse 1, through faith. So we basically, it's not, that's not a word, it's just simply us saying what Jesus has done and what's being described here in verses to 1 to 11. It was for me. The blood shed was for me. And in a moment we're going to gather, aren't we, around the table here and we'll do it in a, in a very tangible way, in a very real way. But smell and touch, taste. We'll take on board food, bread, uh, and we'll, we'll drink wine. Uh, and we'll, it, in that moment we're saying, I, I take on board Jesus and what he's done for me. I trust him. I feed on him in my heart by faith. I rely totally on him. That's what faith means. Dependence upon him and what he's done for us. And as a result, verse 1, the war between us and God is over. Peace has arrived. There is a cessation of hostility. Verse 1, we have peace with God. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in light of this, genuine peace between us and God, the Bible calls us to live peaceably with one another. The the Bible really says the opposite to the way the world often thinks. The world shuts God out and says, we don't need you, God, because you can't be 
important because all these wars are waged in your name. So we reject God and we say that he's not the solution to peace. But the Bible says, no, 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 get right with God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll understand what real peace is and you'll start then being able to live at peace with one another. Most of Paul's letters, when he wrote them, the first half of them, I'm sure most of you are aware of this, the first half is doctrine, the second half duty. The first half is belief, the second half is behaviour in the light of that belief. And that's exactly what happens in this letter to the Romans. Just turn over, keep your place there in Romans 5, and turn over to Romans chapter 12. Uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 16, well 12 begins with that word, therefore, in the light of everything that's happened in chapters 1 to 11, therefore, I urge you, to, to, uh, to live a life that is sacrificial before God. It's a sacrificial service to him. And part of that, look at verse 16, is to live in harmony with one another. We have peace with God, so we live in harmony with each other. And look on to verse 18. In the light of peace with God, if it is possible, as far as it is, depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. This isn't just a truth that we think about and ponder. It ought to change our minds. It is a wonderful truth. It should change our minds, but it should change our lives. Christians should be great specialists in this area of peace. We should be known for it. Uh, Christchurch Central, we're kind of getting a bit of a name for ourselves because we, we meet in a pub. Now, it wasn't because we're like real... I mean, it actually helps a little bit of our strategy of being a church for people who don't go to church. It's helpful for that. But that's not the reason why we meet there. The reason why we meet there is the only place we can afford that's uh, large enough to fit us all in and where we can do children's work and youth work in our own building still, just across the road. It's the nearest thing to us. That's why we meet there. So, but we've got a name for being oh, the church that meets in the late bar. Would you pray that we become a church that's more known for being peaceable people who know what it is to be at peace with God and in the light of that know and are specialists at peace with one another? There are so many things, aren't there, that just creep up in life, creep up in fellowships, creep up in churches that suddenly bite you and and, and we, we get uptight with each other. It can be small things. Coming from there, we need to be on our guard. We need to be remembering that we deserve God's hostility, but in his mercy, he's given us his son. We have peace with him, and we ought to be, our reaction ought to be so shaped by those truths that we respond peaceably when the moment comes when the pressure is on and the temptation is not to be peaceable. Live in harmony with one another. Peace with God. Secondly, come back to uh, chapter 5. The second great privilege a Christian has here. A Christian stands in the presence of God. But that's not the way that uh, Paul puts it. He talks about standing in the grace of God. The emphasis isn't on what we do. Again, it's God's mercy. Christ's riches at Christ, uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace, it's dependent upon him. We stand in his presence, in the presence of his grace. When we talk of peace, we, um, we, we tend, don't we, to, I think, sometimes have a far too smaller understanding of peace. Somehow, when we think of peace, we, we shrink the idea of peace. So, to just simply being cessation of hostility. So, uh, uh, the, the war is going on, 
and United Nations and other folks, ambassadors get involved and peacemakers get involved and there's a, there's a ceasefire. And we think then all oh, their peace. So, you know, the, so the reporter from ITN or BBC can go in and there's no bullets flying, there's no rockets going over. And we talk about that and we think of that being peace. And we don't actually take it the stage further. If I can put it this way, we can't ever imagine, we'd never think that uh, Jerry Adams and Ian Paisley, uh, after a cessation of hostility, would be seen at Thomas Cook together booking a holiday with their families for next, uh, next year in Switzerland, which was, would, would, would never happen, would it? But between us and God, a relationship is a mark of the peace. We have peace with God. We relate to him. It's exactly what verse 2 is saying, isn't it? We, we live the rest of our lives in his presence, standing in his presence. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They were rejected. They were rejected from God's presence, thrown out of the Garden of Eden, unable to relate to God. Uh, that angel with a great fiery sword stood between them and the tree of life. Uh, and, uh, and yet now God's hostility, his wrath has been poured about upon his son. We have peace with God. Uh, but it's not just a cessation of hostility. We stand in his presence, in his grace. Through whom, verse 2, we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. So, uh, God is our Father. The the, the great doors of the courts of heaven or the courts of God's presence are thrown open and you and me can run down the red carpet in his presence. The presence of God. And there's a sense of the presence continuous in the way that uh, that standing is spoken about there by Paul. So a real sense in which every part of our lives we are in the presence of his grace. We live with him in our lives, in the shadow of his wings, day by day. So uh, yes, we are in his presence here, in this building. When we leave, we'll be in his presence over Sunday lunch. We'll be in his presence this afternoon, whatever we do. We'll be in his presence tomorrow. Whatever we do tomorrow, at work, or in our retirement, we'll be present with him in our families. And dare I say it, we'll be present with him when we next go on holiday. We do go on holiday together, those of us that were enemies, God and us. He goes on holiday with us. He's with us everywhere. We're always in his presence. A relationship has begun. Let's not dwarf peace, shrink it. Understand it in his fullness. We have peace with God, which means a relationship with him. Wonderful. It is fantastic and uh, uh, something we should never grow weary of enjoying. And we love, don't we, standing uh, in the presence of celebrity. I, I, well, to be honest, I do. I, I, you know, it's, I, I like the idea of meeting, meeting people who, who are famous and uh, don't think I'm unusual in that. Uh, earlier in the summer, I, I did a, probably the poshest wedding I've ever done uh, down south somewhere where there are nice posh people. Uh, and it was... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there are also some people who are not so posh down there, just like in the north. But well, it was a wonderful, wonderful wedding. It was uh, probably the most opulent wedding I've ever been to. And because I was, uh, I'd done the wedding, I had the privilege of sitting next to a very well-known lord who's been very, very influential in, in our country's uh, you know, recent history. So I sat and, I, and I'm, I'm, I feel really good telling you about that. <laughs> 
Hey, standing there, yeah, me and him. Family and friends in the photograph. <laughs> God's presence. We stand in God's presence. Never mind a really minor celebrity. In God terms. We stand in his presence. I mean, uh, we can see around our home sometimes photographs, pictures. Uh, I was in the, the study with a bishop not long ago uh, and uh, this bishop's particular office study is surrounded with memorabilia and you, you can tell what, what people value and uh, uh, behind uh, this uh, bishop's chair, he's a very large chair, a very big leather chair and I was on a little chair on the other side of the room uh, and behind the bishop was two very big photographs of him with, uh, with uh, the Pope, being blessed by the Pope. Those were the most important things. They were by, so it was the Pope, the bishop, uh, uh, and, and me. You know, kind of, I could see where, actually that was a really valuable moment for him, meeting the Pope. And sometimes it can lead to arrogance, can't it? Somehow we think that because we've had a brush with fame, that somehow we're important. Well, we're not. It can lead to being conceited. It leads to arrogance. Who you know, what you know. Who knows you? Now, uh, again, doctrine and understanding Christian truth should affect the way we live. So keep your place in Romans 5 and turn back to that little verse in chapter 12 and verse 16. We'll read a little bit further in verse 16. It says, live in harmony with one another. And it goes on, it says, do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. Well, why? Because God is. (laughs) God has been willing to associate with you. He is right now, associating with us, who deserve his wrath. Men and women of lowly position. How can we ever be conceited towards someone that we think is lower than us? No, that shouldn't happen in the Christian family. We should throw it out as soon as we smell snobbishness. As God has uh, is, uh, entered into that friendship with us, associated with us, people of low position, so let's not be conceited. Well, we have peace with him. We stand in the presence of his grace. Uh, and uh, thirdly, the Christian hopes for the glory of God. And that's uh, the second part of verse 2. Uh, through to verse 4, back here in, ch- in chapter 5. We stand uh, in God's presence now, but we're still in Mardim. In the, the chapter 1, verse 23 talks about us as human beings uh, exchanging the glory of God for, for, for lies. Uh, chapter 3, verse 23 talks about us falling short of the glory of God. While we live now, yes, we live in God's presence, but it's still marred by our rebellion against him and our sin. It's not what it ought to be. It's not, not what it will be. One day, we will stand in the presence of the full, undiluted glory of the living God. We will. That is our hope that we have. Perfected then. That's what we hope for, isn't it? Look again at uh, verse 2, halfway through. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so. See, the, 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 uh, the truth that we believe in, this hope in the, 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 the glory of God affects the way we live now. And uh, Paul doesn't wait till chapter 12 to start picking up a few uh, practical ways that this works through. He picks up an immediate one, our own suffering. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. See, a hope uh, there, it's uh, 
It is another Bible word with a Bible meaning. Hope, uh, more often than not, means to us wishful thinking. I hope so. It may or may not be, but I hope it will. Uh, Bible hope is, uh, is a confidence that it will be so, so I look forward to it. It will be, so I look forward to it. It's a certainty. And uh, the certainty, Paul is saying here, the certainty of our future glory affects the way we relate and live and think and even our emotions now. Even in suffering. We take a long-term view and we know that it will all be okay. Better than okay, it will be the glory of God. And so whatever I face now, I can persevere through. I can live through because of Jesus and the hope that he's given me in the future. We need to ponder upon these things, don't we? So they really do nurture our minds and our hearts and our attitudes. And if you're someone and you you think, well, I've not really suffered that much in my life, then you really need to be pondering these things now because when suffering comes, it doesn't hit you hard. We need our minds and our hearts in gear before suffering comes. And if we are suffering, we need to to ponder the hope that we have. You see, uh, verse 3 and 4 is not saying I'm happy about suffering. If if I was happy about it, it wouldn't be suffering. It's saying we can rejoice in and through in the midst of suffering. We can rejoice for the justification. We have been declared innocent before God. We can rejoice that we have peace with God. We can rejoice that we have the presence of God in the midst of our suffering. He is with us. And we can rejoice that we, that we know this is not the way it's always going to be. Glory one day. Rejoicing in suffering is not a pretense that things are okay. They're not okay. Rejoicing in suffering is the hope, the certainty that they will be more than okay in the glory of heaven and in God's presence. And there's a dynamic there. Just to cast your eye through verse, verse 4. Uh, verse 3 and verse 4 talks about suffering and in in suffering as we engage with suffering as Christians with the hope we have we learn how to persevere and as we persevere our character grows and develops and as our character grows and develops hope, the experience, the subjective experience of hope is deepened in our hearts it does affect our lives, it affects our characters Christian truth does not because sort of stiff up a lip, this is the way it's going to be until Jesus comes back. No. We actually grow and, and understand hope in our hearts. Because if, if you're a new Christian and if you're young, you, you may not have suffered in the way that the person that sat next to you has suffered and has been a Christian a lot longer than you. And so, yes, you will know that uh, suffering will produce these things, but it's more, actually, you know it by faith. The person sat next to you may know in experience. I think of my mum and dad. I mean, they've they've suffered terribly over these last four or five years in in their older age. My mum keeps on, seems to come out of a moment where, uh, of particular suffering out of, out of hospital and she seems to recover and then, you know, she's just beginning to go for it again and, and suddenly, bang, she's in hospital again this weekend. She may have another operation tomorrow. And I look at my mum and dad and they're marked by hope. And it's a deep thing. It's an experiential thing. 
Whenever I see my dad and I say goodbye to him, he says, see you in Jerusalem, with tears in his eyes. And he's got a little phrase he got from, you know, Fiddler on the Roof, talking about, see, you know, see you in Jerusalem and the, the dispersion of the Jews from, from Russia. And he, he takes it from the, the Christian, the new Jerusalem, see you in Jerusalem, sorry. Knocking this thing over here. And it hits my heart. He means it. And he says it a heck of a lot more than he ever used to as he goes through his suffering. I pray, Lord, Father-like Son, may I grow in the understanding of that kind of hope, whatever I live through. It's a great prayer to pray, isn't it? Now, I don't want to belittle suffering, but I think there's a bit of a challenge here as well that really forces us to, to engage with God's wrath. And I, I, I don't want to be a little suffering. I, just over these next minutes as we draw to close, I want us to really understand the seriousness of God's wrath. Because um, I think it's, uh, it's there in, in verse 5. Verse 5 uses this phrase, poured out. And more often than not in the Bible, poured out is a reference to God's, it's used in reference to God's wrath being poured out. And uh, like I said, I don't want to be a little suffering. I mean, Christchurch Central, we're a, a young church, uh, predominantly young people. Uh, but I have to say that over the last three years, uh, my pastoral skills have been stretched to the limit. A long-term unemployment has hit our church, cancer, repeated miscarriages, drugs, alcohol, depression... Uh, and in it all, I think I've really grown to hate depression more than anything. I'll never, never forget the moment where I'm engaging with an issue where we were seriously concerned about someone because cancer and they, you know, we're worried about death. When suddenly you realise sneaking up behind you is someone suffering from depression, which is suicidal. In actual fact, it's not this person, it's this person that, to all intents and purposes, looks well, that is actually nearer to death than that one. It stretches you and it hurts. Now, I don't want to be a little suffering at all. But it's not our biggest problem. It's not our biggest problem. God's hostility towards us for sin is our biggest problem. And whatever suffering we face now, it is nothing compared to the hostility of God that will be revealed on those who have not been justified through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's hostility with sin is that serious. And yet the profound thing, look at verse 5, we ought to have had the wrath of God poured out upon us, but no, we've had the love of God poured out by his Holy Spirit into our hearts. We've had the opposite. Now that affects the way we live, doesn't it? That does give us hope through suffering. We know that we have been rescued from the most horrific suffering that there will ever be. Ultimate hostility of God. We've been rescued from that. And glory is ours to have, to be given us one day. So as we close, you enjoy peace with God? Well, let's live in harmony with one another. God has made peace with us, let's live at peace with one another. You stand in God's presence? Well, let's be willing to associate 
with others of low position because God has been willing to associate with people of low position. You hope for the glory of God with his love rather than wrath poured out into your heart? Well, let's pray and see that love marks us and our fellowships, our Christian fellowships out as well. Just turn again finally to Romans 12 and verse 9. God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. 12, 9, therefore, love, your love, must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality.